Let Fredo take care of some Mickey Mouse nightclub somewhere. Send Fredo to pick somebody up at the airport. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb. I'm smart and I want respect. Two generations of Corleone men try to grow their power and influence. Join us as we discuss the practice of cupping, the geography of Lake Tahoe, and what smart people don't say. Keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer as we find out if The Godfather Part 2 stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Test of Time. We are today doing the second of our Godfather trilogy. I am James Brief, and joining me, as always, is Alan Noah. How you doing, Al? Hi, that's me. I am doing very well, thank you. How are you doing, James? You know, I want to say something interesting instead of just saying, I'm doing well, so you know what I'm going to say that's interesting, Al? What? The weather is very nice today. (laughs) There you go. That is definitely a fascinating thing that people really care about. By the time this podcast airs, you know, uh, the podcasts are usually not live. Right, right. So it could be different weather by then. Also, people listen to this podcast in other climates. So I don't think this is interesting at all. But you know what I did think was interesting? I saw this article on Variety a few weeks back, and it was about movies being long. The headline I thought was a... a maybe a little clickbaity, but it was called Why Are Movies So Long Now? And it was inspired in part, I think, because of the Batman, but also Spider-Man No Way Home and No Time to Die. It seems like a lot of movies are over two hours now, close to three hours, and that maybe seems like that entices people to go to the movie theater. And I thought that was interesting. Also kind of makes sense uh, while we're talking about The Godfather Part Two, which is three and a half hours long. But just as sort of like this big picture thing, especially coming out of COVID, when, you know, I didn't see many movies at all. And I kind of got into that habit of just watching movies at home on Netflix, on HBO Max or whatever. If I'm going to go out to a movie theater and pay money for that experience, if it's uh, for an 80-minute movie, that is kind of a ripoff, I think, you know? And maybe some movies are fine at 80 minutes or 90 minutes or whatever, but, like, for a big tentpole movie, yeah, I do kind of feel like it should be longer. But then the question is, how long? Two hours? 220? 240? Three hours? I mean, I kind of will admit that now that I'm in my 40s, sometimes three hours is a long time to go without 
having to go to the bathroom, especially if you get one of those giant sodas that they give you at the movie theater. I feel like I always sip it because I'm afraid I'm going to have to pee. It's funny you say uh, older people. I would think it's actually younger people because in the era of, you know, five minute clips on YouTube, a lot of kids say are not watching three hour films. Oh, that is definitely true. I mean, my kids can sometimes struggle to sit still and like, They'll be okay in a movie, but they will also just kind of like move around in those seats a lot and kick the crap out of me. Uh, and yeah, I think there there are younger kids who don't go to see movies because they just cannot sit still for that long. For you personally, like if you're going to see a movie and it's three hours long, does that make you say, oh, crap? Or does that make you say, oh, all right, I'm going to get my money's worth? I absolutely think a a movie should be the length it should be. And we've said it many times that this film comes in at a a lean hour and 41 minutes, and it really doesn't need anything more than that. And I think a lot of times today, maybe that film would be two hours and six minutes, and it shouldn't be. The hour and 41 minute uh, version was much better. That being said, I have not watched Martin Scorsese's The Irishman simply because the length is kind of daunting to me. Usually a film like that, I kind of reserve, like I'll watch at night or something. And I want to give her the respect it deserves. I don't want to watch a Martin Scorsese film starting at 10.55. And a movie like Endgame, I was watching it with my girlfriend who had never seen it before. And it was a similar thing. It was like 10.30, 10.45. She's like, oh, let's watch a Marvel film. And I was like, yeah, we could watch Endgame, but it's three hours and two minutes. And I was like, you know what, at least this film, like, we'll just watch the first hour. And it kind of gets into it and then the second two hours are kind of like almost a different film and we got to break it up there but if it needs to be three hours it's three hours but if it doesn't need to be i hope filmmakers are not under this impression that it has to be longer but i saw something about how like best pictures like tend to not be shorter films but then again best pictures tend to be dramas and best pictures tend to not necessarily be money makers either so you know it depends what you're trying to make here i'm still for a lean film if it deserves to be lean and if it's a great film yeah make it three hours that's fine yeah i mean two of the movies that i saw last year in the theater were referenced in this article no way home and no time to die those were both over two and a half hours and neither one of those movies in my opinion felt like they dragged on i thought those were both good movies at their runtime so i totally agree with you there a movie should be as long as it needs to be ultimately what they're trying to make is money show business is a business and there's a balance there because if a script comes in heavy and it's going to be a longer movie especially if it's a bond movie or a spider-man movie or a marvel movie whatever it's going to cost more money for them to shoot those scenes. That costs money. And then it hurts them in the movie theater because then there's less showings, right? If you have an hour and a half movie, you can maybe show that six or seven times during one business day. If it's a three and a half hour movie, then maybe you only show it three or four times. And then there's less people buying the movie ticket and there's less people buying popcorn and those huge sodas that make you pee 12 times. So that does hurt the bottom line. And I think that this is a thing that is being thought about from a dollars and cents point of view, maybe not always an artistic point of view of the movie takes as long as it takes, for better or worse. I will say that I have not yet seen The Batman. It clocks in at three hours. And 
the runtime doesn't make me not want to see it, but as a father, it does make me have to coordinate when I can find basically like a four hour window of free time, including three hours for the movie, half an hour for trailers. If we want to grab a bite to eat beforehand, which you're going to need to do if you're going to be sitting in a theater for three and a half hours, like it's a time commitment. Look, some long movies are great. Some short movies are great. There's no hard and fast rule. This movie, The Godfather Part Two, that we're talking about today, I watched on DVD, a DVD I got from my library. It was on two DVDs, this movie. It was a two-disker. You were talking last week in The Godfather about movies that were on two VHSs. I feel like that wasn't super rare, you know, like movies that needed a second VHS, but a movie that needed a second DVD. I feel like that didn't happen a lot. Like you actually had to change discs? Oh, yeah. I forget exactly where in the movie, but yeah, about two hours into the movie, the movie stopped, text on screen popped up and said, insert disc two. Then I had to watch the second half of the movie on the second disc. I am not talking about special features or bonus content or anything. I'm talking about the movie. This film has an actual quote-unquote intermission on it. And I wonder if that's an artistic thing, that it makes you actually have to have an intermission by making you get up for for a moment. I don't know. That seems weird. Have you ever seen a DVD where you had to split the movie ever? I can't think of one. I can think of Schindler's List and Titanic that I remember were on two VHSs. But I can't think of a movie that had to be on two DVDs off the top of my head. No. I can show it to you. It's in it's in the bag over there waiting to go back to the library. But the movie itself was on two DVDs. I don't know the limits of it. Obviously, you know, Blu-ray, you'd be able to do it on a single disc. But that's interesting. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Godfather Part 2. This is a very interesting film. Uh, this film, uh, it came out after a best picture. It was based on a single novel, but it was not like it was part of a trilogy of novels or, or you know, a, the first movie only film, the first half of the first novel. Most of what's in this film is new. And, you know, you're kind of picking up after a best picture and it's only a couple of years after that. And why are you messing with a good thing? But, uh, you know, The Godfather Part 2, this film tells two mirroring stories of the Corleone film. Family. It talks about Michael Corleone and now his efforts to grow influence in the 1950s. And it also has flashbacks in the early 20th century, showing an earlier Vito Corleone's rise to power. Vito, he's a penniless, smallpox-ridden immigrant from Sicily who eventually becomes a criminal kingpin through cunning and violence. Meanwhile, Michael, he juggles the expanding Corleone family from Las Vegas to Cuba. And when Michael experiences a betrayal within the family, he is led to an extreme decision. And in these two stories, we see how a father and son follow the same path but choose different priorities. As Marlon Brando once famously said, the son becomes the father and the father becomes the son. That's from Superman. Spoken by Jor-El. Played by Marlon Brando. But Marlon Brando (laughs) is not in this movie. That's correct. Vito Corleone is, but he is played by a young Robert De Niro, a baby-faced Robert De Niro, I read that apparently Marlon Brando was going to show up for that last scene in this movie where, you know, like Vito comes home, but then he just decided not to. And then they had to rewrite it like that day of, you know, he arrives off camera. Yeah, I think it was a money thing because I, I think famously like Superman, he made like a million dollars a day or something, which was unheard of back then. 
And Godfather Part 2, it actually didn't make as much as Godfather 1. It was budgeted about $13 million, and reports of the box office go anywhere from 50 to 100 million. But this is only at the box office. This has nothing to do with television and VHS. And you and I were talking about, it used to be two VHSs. So it was the kind of thing that you wouldn't necessarily expect to pay $9.99 for it. It would be, okay, this is 20 bucks for this film because it's a double VHS. And uh, this film really goes back and forth between the quote-unquote modern story, which is Michael Corleone, uh, the Al Pacino in the 1950s and 60s, and then there's flashbacks to the turn of the century in the 1910s, 1920s of Vito Corleone's rise to power. Now we flash back to uh, Corleone, Italy in 1901. And I think Francis Ford Coppola, who returns to be director of this film, he does a very smart thing. He makes it pretty obvious to everyone, like, this is Vito Corleone, 1901. But he films the old uh, flashbacks in sort of like a sepia filter. And I think it really helps us to know which scene is which. And the music is different, but I really like that he did that. I think it makes it very clear. Because to us, we know it because it's so famous, this film. But I wonder if this is kind of a thing that was done or or done often. And and I just compliment them on the way he did it. Well, it was not commonly done. And the fact that this movie is both a prequel and a sequel is a thing that people now like about it. But at the time, it was very confusing and people didn't get it. And like, why are there two different stories that have nothing to do with each other? But when you're in 1901 Sicily, like there is that text on screen right away that tells you where you are and what's happening. And that Vito's father was killed because he insulted or disrespected this mob boss. And then Vito's older brother swears revenge. And then like while they're going to the funeral for the father, someone announces that the older brother has been killed. This mafia guy killed the older brother. And then the mother is distraught and she goes to see the guy and basically beg for him to not kill her other son, young Vito, because he's just a little baby and he's a little slow and he's not going to hurt you. He's just a little kid. And the guy says, no, I have to kill him because he's going to grow older and, and swear revenge on me. And she says, oh, yeah. And she pulls a knife on him. One of the goons immediately kills her, and then Vito is able to escape. He doesn't just kill the mom. He, like, shotgun to the chest. She flies, like, 20 feet. I mean, it is like, wow, this guy just blows this lady away. And little Vito, he runs off, and he manages to stow away on a boat to America. But before he does... They are so hell-bent on getting this kid. It seems like for days, if not weeks or months, they just parade through the streets saying in in, uh, Italian, anyone who boards this Vito Corleone or Vito Andrelli or Adretti, whatever his name is then, they will be killed too. Like, nobody better help this guy. These guys are definitely doing the classic intimidation tactics. Yes, Andolini is the last name. But yes, exactly. But he gets to Ellis Island. 
they rename him Corleone because that's the name of the town that he's from, which is a thing that happened uh, in Ellis Island. You know, the people who were, who were working there would rename people as they were coming through. Maybe or maybe not, apparently. Oh, that, really? I'm not sure. I have to, like, kind of verify. But I've read that may be a little bit of a myth. People may have changed their names when they came to America to Americanize it, but there might be a myth when people are like, Corleone, all right, you're now Carl. That might not have happened the way that we kind of depict it as happening. I see. Okay, maybe it's one of those things that just happened in movies more than it happened in real life. My guess is the truth is not the thing on uh, the TVs where everyone became Sam. Like my grandfather, we always called him Grandpa Sheik. He was Samuel Frankel. Like, he had an American name. I'm not entirely sure of uh, specifically what happened. Like, how did he get that name? Interesting. Um, I just found it was interesting when he goes to Ellis Island. They check him and they say, this guy has smallpox. Three months quarantine, then release him somewhere. And like, it's like, wow. You just see little Vito like staring out a window and he's in basically almost like a jail cell, like a little quarantine cell. And then we go back to 1958. And now we're at Michael's son's communion. Right. And this kind of mirrors the wedding scene from the first movie where it's a party for someone in the family of the godfather and all of these people are coming to see him to talk to him to ask him for favors to ask him this to ask him that one of the guys who comes to see michael is this senator who basically tries to extort michael because michael's trying to buy another casino that is now the family business that they're in. They own all these casinos. Michael wants to buy another casino. And the senator is basically trying to extort him to pay a lot of money. He says, I don't like you. I don't like you Italians who come in here and you act all nice and you pretend like you're nice family, but you're all gangsters. Oh, he's like with your greasy hair. He shouldn't be this mouthy to a mob boss. But he's a senator. I could buy it that a senator would be scared of nobody. I guess. Then there's this other guy who comes to see Michael Pentangeli. He feels disrespected because Michael doesn't want to see him right away. And he has a problem with these guys, the Rosado brothers, and they work for Hyman Roth. And Hyman Roth is an important business partner of Michael, but he's not Italian. He's a Jew. And so... Pentangeli doesn't like him because he's a Jew, and Michael likes him because he's making him money. He's a good uh, businessman. Connie comes in. She's got a new boyfriend, a new guy that she wants to marry. It seems like she's just been going from guy to guy since her former husband was killed. Right. And Kay at one point says to Michael, do you remember that you said in five years you would be completely legitimate? That was seven years ago, and you're still in the casino gambling mafia business. What's up with that? Michael's like, yeah, you know, working on it. But then that night, there is an assassination attempt while Michael is in his home, in his bedroom. He's okay. Uh, Kay's okay. The kids are okay. But it certainly seems like it was an inside job. Someone was in the compound with guns. They knew to open the window so that it would be easier for them to hit Michael. And then when they find the assassins, they're dead. So someone let them into the compound and someone killed them before they could talk. So someone on the inside is mad at Michael and wants him dead. 
Yep. And now we flash back to Vito. It's now about 20 years later, and he's no longer a little boy. He's now a 20-something-year-old, uh, very poor guy who's living in the Little Italy area of Manhattan. And there's this local mob boss, this guy, Don Fanucci. He needs respect around the neighborhood, and everyone's got to pay him, and he takes what he wants. And if you do a little crime, you got to give him a little taste and show respect. And Fanucci has a nephew, and he even forces the shopkeep. He's like, you're going to give my nephew a job. Hey, capiche? The grocer, who's a real nice guy, he goes to Vito, and he's like, I'm so sorry, Vito. I'm going to have to give this guy your job. And Vito actually is completely okay with it. He's not mad at the shopkeeper. Shopkeeper even tries to like give him like a crate full of food. I don't think he knew who Vito was going to become, but that was very smart of him to stay in Vito's good grace. Races. And he doesn't know what he's going to do at night. He's home. He's got a little baby. And suddenly he hears a cacophony from next door. It's his neighbor, Clemenza. And he just screams at him in Italian. He goes, here, take this. Hide it. I'll come back in a week. And he throws him a sack, which Vito immediately looks at and sees a sack full of guns. But the next week when Clemenzo says, yeah, I still have that sack? And he goes, yeah, sure I do. And he goes, you didn't look at it, did you? And, and Vito very smartly goes, I don't look at things that have nothing to do with me. I stay out of people's business. Very smart thing to say. So Clemenzo says, yeah, you know what? Uh, I might have some jobs for you. And they steal a little rug together. That's his payment for holding the guns. He says, oh, my friend has a rug that uh, he'll give you. And then they go into a guy's house and steal the rug. But this isn't even one of these like, Vito is like, what, what, what? He's like, oh, okay. Yeah, we're stealing this guy's rug. Okay. You were probably going to steal it for yourself. And, you know, I guess you're, you're letting me in on this. And Clemenza was a character we saw in the first Godfather movie. This young version is played by Bruno Kirby, who I see and immediately think of City Slickers. He's done other stuff too, but, you know, he's a baby face in this movie. And then we go back to the 50s and we see Michael. He meets with Hyman Roth and he says that he knows it was Pentangeli who tried to kill him. Then he meets with Pentangeli and says that he knows that it was Roth who tried to kill him. And I was a little confused here because I wasn't sure if he really suspected one or the other, or if he suspected both of them, or he suspected that it was one of them, but he wasn't sure which one it was. Because both Roth and Pentangeli are, you know, denying it. They're not going to say that they had anything to do with it. But then there is an attempt on Pentangeli's life, and the assassin says, this is a message from Michael Corleone. And Pentangeli isn't killed because there are cops like walking into the bar while this murder is happening, and Pentangeli is almost killed, but he survives. Apparently that was a line that was improvised. Yes, 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 yes. And it isn't clear if it's correct. Did Michael really send some guy to kill Pentangeli or not. And we find out later that it was Roth who did it and is just trying to make it look like it was Michael, but we don't know that at the time. Hmm. Like we were talking about last week about uh, how you kind of need to go to Wikipedia after you watch the movie. Or I, during the film? Sure. I know that because I read it on Wikipedia afterwards. Oh, okay. And uh, Michael's interest in uh, Las Vegas grow. He's able to finally get his licenses as suddenly materialized because 
the Nevada senator, the one that was really uh, abrasive to them, wouldn't you know it? I guess it happens to everyone. Eventually you wake up and there's just a dead bloody hooker there. Yeah, uh, this scene is brutal. And you get it that it's a setup. The senator was sleeping with this woman, but he didn't kill her. He says that he doesn't remember what happened. Someone slipped something into his drink. He passed out. They killed the hooker. And now they're coming in to say, oh, we'll help you and you'll consider it a favor and you'll consider us a good friend to you. And, you know, that means that Michael gets that casino license that he needs, right? Because we're going to take care of this hooker problem that you have. And it's like... Oh, it's just terrible. Like that they killed this woman and, you know, they're just using that as the way to get on the senator's good graces. And yeah, it's just um, terrible and icky. And also just because you see this woman just covered in blood everywhere. Oh, it's even worse than that. Tom, I couldn't tell if he was like, he doesn't want to be a bad guy, but he's like, this is the family he's brought up when. But he turns to the Nevada guy and he goes, look. She has no family. No one's going to miss her. And he's basically like, she's nothing. You know, we'll take care of everything. Or he can go to jail and everything is gone. Like, wh- which one do you want it to be? Right. And it just really, like, wow, Tom was so ruthless. Like, he was really a, kind of the glue behind all of this. Is that a reference to the horse head in the first movie? Maybe, maybe. That's an inappropriate joke about glue. Perhaps, Al. And now we get a little history lesson. This film right now, we're in 1958. The film was released in 1974. So this is only 16 years later. I have to say that 50 years later, you really kind of have to know what's going on here. They're not obvious about it. If they had made this film today, they would be very obvious about like, you know, we're at the dawn of a rebellion of uh, Fidel Castro. And they don't make it completely confusing. But I'm saying it's not as obvious today what's going on right now. I I just found it interesting as a test of time, people aren't as aware of this as they might be today. Well, what happens in Cuba in 1958, James? Well, there's the Cuban Revolution and the uh, the communists take over under Fidel Castro and it's a whole coup. It turns out that the mob had a really cozy relationship with the kind of, according to the uh, film, a corrupt government and to these, you know, Corleone types, like, that's good for them. Because Hyman Roth is like, we have a very sympathetic government to our business needs and they give us everything we want. And you could read between the lines that these guys probably pay off the government and they get to do whatever they want in Cuba. Right. But Michael sees a rebel blow himself up as a way to fight the government. And he says, huh, if they're willing to blow themselves up, maybe this rebellion might succeed. And he says this in front of Hyman, who does not like that at all. Hyman's like, shut up and let's do business. And Michael agrees to pay him the money that he owes him. He has Fredo come and bring the money to him. And basically, Fredo is pretending to not know anything about Hyman Roth. He's pretending to not know Johnny Ola, who's Roth's like right-hand man. And that's important because Michael is sort of suspecting that maybe Hyman Roth tried to kill him. And who was the inside man? And Fredo says, I don't know these people. I don't know these people. But then they go to a sex show and Fredo says something of like, oh, I remember when Johnny Ola first brought me here, told me about this place. And then Michael instantly realizes that Fredo was lying to him. 
He does know this guy, and he was the one who betrayed him. He was the one who set up that hit earlier in the movie. Right, and this is also around the time that Fredo and Michael are talking, and he goes, you know, Mama used to joke that I was the one that was left on the doorstep by gypsies, and she would tell people that I wasn't hers. This poor guy, I mean, he's not an innocent man, but this guy has really had a, a bum rap in life. He's born... Without any needs, you know, his, he's born to one of the richest families in America. Not even his mother loved him. You have such sympathy for him. This guy, John Cazal, he was only in five films, and all five films were nominated for Best Picture. And then he died uh, very early. He died at the, at the age of, like, 53 or something. And oh, wow. he was in uh, The Godfather, Godfather Part Two. He was in a film called The Conversation. He was in Dog Day Afternoon, also Al Pacino. Right. And then he was in a film we're going to do eventually. It's a film that centers around Russian roulette. Do you know which film I'm talking about? Deer Hunter? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I have seen that one. Interesting. And Michael, after he realizes that it was Fredo, he gives him a kiss and he says, I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. And then the rebels advance. It's a New Year's Eve party. And Michael tells Fredo that he still wants him to come with him and they can escape Cuba together. Fredo runs off because now he knows that Michael knows that he betrayed him. Michael tries to kill Roth, but the guy who goes to like smother him with the pillow is found and he's shot. But then Michael does go back home and he goes to talk to Kay and he finds out that she had a miscarriage because they already have a, a son and a daughter, but she was pregnant again. And Michael is upset because he wanted to have another son because in a crime family, you need to have lots of sons to pass the business on to, as we know from the first movie. That's true. And, you know, if you have a hothead son who gets killed, you need a backup son who's going to take over the business. Exactly. And now we get to another flashback, and this is my favorite part of the film. This is really the rise of Vito Corleone. So there was that guy, if you remember, Don Fanucci. He stops Vito in a little carriage, and he's like, you and your boys, I don't mind. You guys pulled off a little heist, but you got to pay me $200 each. I want $200 from each of you. And Vito, uh, he's very cool about it. He goes, okay, I'll talk to the boys. The boys are like, let's pay him, let's pay him. It's Don Fanucci. And Vito goes, why should we pay him? It's, it's our money. And he goes, I'll tell you what. Not I'm going to take care of it. He goes, you guys each give me $50. Now, this is all taking place with subtitles. And every once in a while, there's a little bit of English. Robert De Niro says, I take care of everything. And it's just so great. I love that line. And you also see at one point that uh, Fredo, I believe it's Fredo, is the, the son that he has now. And he's very sick. And they were doing something on him called cupping. Do you know what that is? No, I was going to ask you about that. It's an Eastern practice or an alternative medicine practice that some people do. It's basically where you take little pieces of paper and you take a glass or really any cup. You usually take a glass and you put the piece of paper on someone's back and then you light the piece of paper and quickly put the uh, glass down. It creates a vacuum. You leave the cup on there for about five minutes and you do this like 10 times on your back and you see these like 10 circles on there. And it's, it's maybe medicinal, who knows? But that's what they were doing. And I, I wonder if that was Fredo and I wonder if they were trying to show that maybe – 
he got sick as a kid and, you know, maybe got some damage. Maybe that's what made him slow or something. I have no idea. But I thought that was interesting that they referenced Fredo. And I think it was Fredo. I'm pretty sure it was Fredo there. But then Vito goes and talks to Finucci and says, you wanted $600? I'm giving you $100. And Finucci is like, okay, you know what? I respect that. I respect that you've got balls. As long as I'm getting something, I'm happy. Sure, deal. And that was exactly what Vito said was going to happen. He was going to get the guy to accept less. And he got him to accept less. And then Finucci leaves the meeting and goes into this like parade down uh, Mulberry Street. I assume it's Mulberry Street. It's Little Italy. And Vito follows him, follows him back to his apartment and shoots him. And I was like, well, why did he do that? He just got him to agree to the deal that he wanted. And the next time we see young Vito, Vito is basically like the godfather. Now he has people coming to him and asking him for favors. And his wife's friend is being kicked out of her apartment. She needs uh, Vito to talk to the landlord. And he does. And he shakes the guy down. First, the landlord is like, fuck you. What a, who the hell are you? And then immediately the next morning when this landlord presumably found out who Vito Corleone was, he's like, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry, Godfather. Here's your money back and, and the rent will stay the same. And Vito just looks at him. I mean, it's $5 less. I mean, $10 less a month. And then the, the actor is like tripping over himself to run away as fast as he can. It's a, such a great scene. Yeah. But I felt like there was a big gap between Vito kills Finucci and now Vito is the new Finucci. I think this is the equivalent of when he got to the neighborhood, he stabbed the biggest, scariest guy he could see. So everyone goes, wow, he would mess with Don Finucci. And I think the the uh, landlord here shows exactly what happens. It's Fear. This guy is so petrified of the name Vito Corleone that he sprints and trips over himself to give Vito his money back and lower his rent out of the mere assumption he may have disrespected Vito Corleone. Maybe it's implied that maybe a couple other Don Fanucci uh, capos maybe had to get killed too over the next few months. But I think it was very clear Vito Corleone does not mess around and he will kill anyone who crosses him. Yeah, I get that. I just feel like there's more interesting story there that the movie skips. And I understand why, because there's only so much movie that they can put in. And this movie's already three and a half hours. But I just feel like seeing that transformation of Vito standing up for his friends and standing up for himself and then becoming, you know, a mafia boss, I feel like there's more to it than that. And I feel like the movie just kind of took one very large leap, which I was like, wait, what? No, 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 no. You're telling the backstory. Tell the backstory. Well, I think in the next scene, uh, that also says in one of these, a Sicilian never forgets and you never cross him. Vito goes back to Sicily and kills Don Ciccio, fulfilling the prophecy that Ciccio himself knew would happen. He completely avenges his family's death exactly as he knew would happen. Right. Vito fulfills the destiny. He avenges the death of his father, brother, and mother. Because this uh, sociopath killed all of them. Yeah, I just, I feel like there was still just more of Vito's journey that I would have liked to have seen. 
but back in the 50s or maybe we're in the early 60s now, I'm not sure. But there is a Senate committee investigating organized crime and Michael is denying everything. And he's saying, look, you're making all of these accusations against me, but you don't have any evidence or a witness who says that I've done any of these things. And there's something else I love in this uh, scene. You could tell in the two years that the first Godfather became a phenomenon, there must have been backlash against Italian-Americans about how every one of them is in the mob and, you know, probably uh, every one of them knows a mobster or something like that. Because there's specifically a line that one of the senators, like, he makes a speech that says, now, I want to say that I know many Italian-Americans and they're law-abiding good citizens that defended our country. And I feel like that line was put in this film as a response to what people might have said because it was something very similar in The Sopranos at one point when they were being kind of meta about it and being like and all these television shows about mobsters give us a bad name I think this film is making a either lip service to it or was actually trying to say no 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 these are the mobsters and they're Italian American but there's a difference I mean it's something you would see in a Senate hearing but why include it in this film because this senator who gives the speech is the guy who was shaking Michael down earlier and then was caught with the dead hooker. So he's just saying all of these things about how nice the Italians are and how much he loves Italians because now he has to do that because he's in Michael's pocket. It could be that. You're right. It could be. You don't really take it seriously because you're just kind of like, oh, here's just a politician who's full of hot air when he's saying all this stuff. Uh, but... The witness that the Senate committee does have is Pantangeli, because remember, he thinks that Michael tried to kill him. So now he's going to show up and say in front of the Senate committee and the world that Michael ordered this hit. But Michael shows up to the next uh, day of the Senate hearing with Pantangeli's older brother. And that's all it takes. Pantangeli looks at him and says, oh, um, yeah, I just said whatever they wanted me to say. I don't know anything about any hit. I think Michael Corleone's a very nice guy. And He's basically like, well, what's the mafia? I don't know. What's a murder? What's a gun? I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, it's, it's very obvious this guy is being intimidated somehow. And the senators even like... Until that mysterious man walked into the courtroom, you were on our side. Who the hell is that guy? And they even find out it's his brother, but they can't really connect to A to B to C to D. So they can't really do anything. It's interesting that you say that because I was wondering about that connection of the A to B to C. Like, who is this brother? Is he someone who we've met before? Is he someone that was introduced earlier in the movie was he from godfather part one? Oh, i get it he's a guy that Vito knows from sicily and that's the connection that's where the flashbacks and the present movies converge nope there's no connection it's just michael brought his brother and the brother looks at him and he recants and i thought there was a missed opportunity there I think it should have been a little more clear. I think I agree with you. There should have been some reference to his brother in Sicily. There's no reason it had to be a shock to the audience, too. They could have told the audience, oh, just get his brother in Italy. All we got to do is show him there and he'll turn. You know, I think they could have prepared us a little because they did explain it with the senator saying it. But I was confused in the beginning and I was thinking I missed something. Yeah, yeah. It definitely feels that way when you watch it now. But Michael does eventually talk to Fredo and Fredo says, you know, 
the business was going to go to Sonny and then Fredo was the next oldest son, but he was passed over and it went right to Michael and it's not fair and he feels neglected and he was just trying to get a little piece of action from Hyman and he didn't know that it was going to be a hit. He had no idea that Michael's life was in danger and does Michael believe him? Maybe, maybe not. But he says that you're dead to me. You are nothing. You're not my brother. You're not my friend. But then he turns to his bodyguard, his enforcer, and says, nothing happens to him while my mother is alive. His mother already lost a son. And that is like the protection that Fredo is fine as long as the mother lives. Shortly thereafter, the mother dies and Fredo and Michael are totally separate at the funeral. And Connie basically plays peacemaker. She says, look, Michael, you got to talk to him. You got to forgive him. And he does. Like, Michael goes to him and they embrace and they're sad. Their mother died. And, you know, it seems like maybe Michael's ready to forgive Fredo and they can just be brothers. That's not what happens, Alan. Yeah, I know. I saw the rest of the movie. I didn't stop at this point. Yeah, if you stop right now and go, oh, it's a film about brotherly redemption. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he, he uh, Michael actually does uh, fratricide and uh, he orders the murder of his own brother. And it appears that he looks, he witnesses it. It appears that he's watching it. Well, it happens when Fredo's out on the lake fishing and michael's by the window looking out at the lake it depends on how big the lake is how far away he was we don't really get a good sense of the lake geography is this lake tahoe that they're on maybe i don't know but you know as cruel as it is it even seems like you know michael could kill this guy in any way possible but poor fredo at least he kind of went out like fishing probably never knew the bullet was there I'm at least glad that this poor guy did not go out in some terrifying uh, piano wire to the neck in the last 12 seconds were terror. It's, it's horribly died. But you were talking about when he's talking with uh, Michael, how he's passed over and he just says this part where he goes, they all think I'm dumb, but I'm not dumb. I'm smart. I'm smart, Michael. It's the kind of thing a smart person doesn't try to convince everyone that how smart he is. Right, right, and, right. And you realize like, oh, you know, Fredo, you weren't passed over because, you know, they don't like you. Maybe what we saw in the flashbacks, maybe you, you had some kind of brain damage. Maybe you had meningitis. Maybe there was, there was something wrong with you. You didn't have the skills that Sonny or Michael had. It's so sad seeing that. And, you know, he made a mistake. He did. And I've read online, you know, with a speculation, did he, was he just manipulated? Apparently at the, at the assassination in his bedroom when he, when he takes Kay behind the bed and protects her, the window curtains are left open and there's no way you would do that unless you knew someone needed access to the windows to see in the bedroom. So he probably did know or, or at least they told him, you got to make sure the window curtains are open. Maybe they didn't say so we can kill your brother. And maybe Fredo is that dumb. Maybe he <laughs> just doesn't realize it. And they're like, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to throw a brick in his window, scare him a little. You know, we need this hotel contract. I can see Fredo being that dumb. But I'm smart. You're right. If someone tells you that they're smart, they're not smart. Right. But also, while Michael is planning the death of his brother, he also gets into a fight with his wife, Kay, 
Because Kay tells Michael that she did not have a miscarriage, she had an abortion. She ended the pregnancy because she can't bring another child into this family with Michael and his mafia shit and the violence and the murder and everything that goes along with it. And I said in last week's episode that it's a shame that you have this great actress, Diane Keaton, and they give her nothing to do in the movie. This time they give her a scene. They give her something to do. And this scene is really powerful. And when she tells Michael this, he reacts by hitting her. He smacks her and he basically just kicks her out of the family. It's fucked up. He has his brother killed. He kicks his wife out of his family. He is able to finally assassinate Hyman Roth. He has one of his guys kill him. Apparently, Hyman Roth had been bouncing around the world. He wasn't welcome in Israel. He wasn't welcome here. He wasn't welcome there. He finally comes home to the United States, and one of Michael's goons is there to kill him. There's a weird moment when Tom Hagen is talking with Pentangeli, because Pentangeli is still a federal prisoner, and... Basically, Tom says, hey, you know, in the old days, uh, if someone plotted against the emperor and then felt bad about it, they could just kill themselves. And that way, their family would be taken care of. That would be their way of, like, apologizing. The message is pretty clear. And then Pantangeli does slit his wrists and he kills himself for speaking against Michael. But then, presumably, the family won't hold it against Pantangeli's you know, actual family, his wife and children. And the movie ends with a flashback to 1941. It's all the Corleone children who we've seen as like little babies in Vito's flashbacks. Now they're adults. They're waiting for their father to come home. And Sonny's there and Connie's there. Sonny introduces Connie to Carlo, the husband who, you know, would beat the shit out of her in the first movie. And Michael says that he's enlisted in the Marines and everyone leaves the room when Vito comes home. This is when Marlon Brando was supposed to be there, but he didn't. And the movie just ends with Michael in the room alone. It ends on a really sad, somber, terrible note of Michael being alone in 1941. He's alone in, uh, you know, the quote unquote present, the 60s. And um, yeah, it's a really fucking terrible ending. I guess in my world, when I think of a sequel with a really sad ending, I think of Empire Strikes Back. But this ending is far more depressing. Yeah, but Empire Strikes Back, we weren't alive to like really appreciate Empire Strikes Back being the theater. We only know Empire Strikes Back as part two of a, don't worry, it's all covered and there's going to be cute, cuddly bears in there. You know, <laughs> I'm drinking water from my uh, Return of the Jedi Ewok glass. So, right. Yeah. And next week we'll talk about Godfather Part 3 and we'll see if there are, you know, any small bear-like creatures on the moon of Endor. We shall see. But that, of course, leads us to the only reason we're really here, Al. And that is to find out on the Test of Time podcast, does Godfather Part 2 stand the test of time? Well... This might be considered a little bit of a quote-unquote hot take, but this movie is really, really good. I really like Godfather Part Two. It might be a little overrated. It is worshipped. It's put on a pedestal. It is considered this unbelievable classic, and I don't know that it's that great. 
I love Robert De Niro in this movie. I think he is fantastic. It is a little bit of a bummer, though, that he's basically just doing a Marlon Brando impression the whole time. The Marlon Brando mustache that he has, is it doesn't work for him. I don't know. It just feels like he's trying to be Marlon Brando, which he is, but I think it's a little bit of a missed opportunity with him. And the thing that I think I wanted to see more of in this movie was more of a connection between the two stories, between Vito and Michael. And I had seen this movie before. I didn't really remember a lot of it. Pretty early on in the movie, Michael has one of the famous lines from this movie, which is, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And he says that he learned that from his father. And I was like, oh, that's the thing. We're going to see that in the Vito story. We're going to see why Vito said to keep your friends close and your enemies closer. That'll be like the origin of that. Nope, not really. You know, like the thing with the brother, you know, like we don't see... Vito with Pentangeli's brother. We see him with Clemenza and Tessio, and we know them from the first movie, and that's cool, but like we don't see why Tessio would eventually betray Vito later. There's no like little groundwork for that. Apparently, Pentangeli, the character in like the, the 50s, 60s part of the story, was supposed to be an older Clemenza, but it didn't work out. I forget if the actor died or he just didn't want to do the sequel. So then they made that character be this new guy, Pentangeli. That might have helped if we could have seen a little bit more of like Vito Corleone and young Clemenza and Michael Corleone and old Clemenza. Maybe that could have been a better parallel between these two stories. The real parallel there between the two of them is that Vito builds his business family by taking care of his real family. Whenever you see Vito with his wife, with his children, he's loving. He takes care of them. He takes care of the people in his community. He cares about them. He's not like Finucci. He's not a ruthless crime boss who wants to fuck over everyone and make money. He wants to make money. He'll kill people. He'll scare people. He's okay to do that. But the movie just sort of makes Vito be like a better person, a mafia boss with a heart of gold, as opposed to Michael, who goes the other direction. He beats the shit out of his wife. He has his own brother killed. Like in the first movie, he kills his brother-in-law. And you're not sad about that. That guy was, the guy was also beating the shit out of Connie. Exactly. He's beating his pregnant wife. You don't care that Carlo dies. No one feels bad about that. You like Fredo. Yeah, you like Fredo. And I knew he was going to kill Fredo. I remembered that from the last time I saw this movie. But I was like, that's the worst thing he could do. Why can't he learn forgiveness? Why can't he have this moment of, you know, realizing that you don't kill your brother? Seems like a pretty basic lesson. But it's a tragedy. This movie is a tragedy. I don't know if it's like got the makings of a Greek tragedy, but it's an Italian-American tragedy. And it's really heartbreaking to watch. And it makes me very sad but it's supposed to. It's supposed to make me feel all these things. And the fact that it gets under my skin and makes me so upset means that the movie did what it was supposed to do. And even though I do think the movie is a bit overrated, it is still a great movie. It is a fantastic sequel. It adds on to what you saw in the first movie, and it definitely stands the test of time. What do you think, James? 
Um, I think it sounds like your criticism of this film is that just that they didn't make the specific film you would have made. But, uh, you know, some of the criticisms that I would make of this film would be like we talked about last week. I couldn't completely follow everything. I needed Wikipedia with me to follow some of these things. And I think, had they known the phenomenon and the landmark films that these would be, I think they might have planned the trilogy a little better. Some of the continuity that we couldn't see had to do a lot more with the behind the scenes things. I think it was the actor Clemenza. It was, I think it was a money thing. And then, of course, Marlon Brando wouldn't come back for the second film. Yet there wouldn't be a money problem if everyone knew how much money this movie would make. Sure, Clemenza, you want an extra five. Here's an extra 50,000. Who cares? For me, though, I think that the juxtaposition of the older and younger son is, it's so cool. Robert De Niro is so amazing. And yeah, he he's stuck doing a Brando impression. I'm fine with that. De Niro pulls it off and, sure. and it's it's great. There's very little that I, I dislike about this film. Really, my only criticism is that I find parts of it hard to follow. I couldn't even remember the Clemenza character, the older one. Which one was he in the first film? Like, I, I couldn't remember who was who. I was also hoping for a Tessio thing, or maybe an act of you know, possible betrayal early on or something like that. But I might have done something different. But that's not really criticism of what I was seeing. What I am seeing in this film, I think, is awesome. It's better than the last time I saw it. So I'm going to say that uh, Godfather Part Two does stand the test of time. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Like when I was talking about how we kind of skip with Vito when he kills Finucci and then he's the mob boss. I think part of it is related to what you're saying about like the intricacies of who is this guy and how is he connected to that one and all of that stuff. To me, that's not really the interesting thing. And I think that is the interesting thing for a lot of people who like gangster movies in general. I'm, I'm painting with broad strokes here, but I think the people who love this genre, they know, well, Clemenza is this guy and that guy is Tatalia and this guy is this one and that one is the capo of that one and everything. And they really like knowing that stuff in the way like I can tell you about all of these random Star Wars characters. Like people really get into that stuff and the minutiae of these crime families and who's who and who betrays who and whatever. To me, that is confusing, like you're saying. And also, it's not interesting. To me, what's more interesting is how does Vito, this kid who comes to America, doesn't speak English, is quarantined for three months, he has nobody, he eventually decides that he has to kill somebody in order to protect his family then how does he become that mob boss? That's the story I want to see. The machinations of that. What leads Michael to decide that murdering his brother is the right choice? I feel like that's the stuff that I care about. And it's in this movie, but I would have liked to have seen more of that and less of this guy who is the capo of that guy who used to work with that guy but is now mad at this guy. That, to me, is less interesting. Those are all interesting points, and I actually have something to say about that next week when we talk about Godfather Part 3. Oh, you're going to make me wait a whole week? Just like we're going to make our listeners wait a whole week for The Godfather Part 3? I hope people are going to tune in for that episode and not just skip it, because the reputation of Part 3 is that it's the bad one. Is it really the bad one? I don't know. We'll see. We will find out together next week. So, of course, until then, we want to keep hearing from you guys. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
talk to us. Make sure you're subscribed on whatever podcast provider you're listening to us on. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be very, very kind of you. And we will see you next week, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.